Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, in this place, in this hour, through your word. Speak to your people. Words of power that can never fail, and let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, kicking off our series in the gospel according to Luke. If you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 885. Uh, These Bibles here on the back, sorry, 855. Bibles on the back table there. We have some black Bibles and some golden color Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of these. This is our gift to you. Well, as Andrew shared with the children about receiving a letter in the mail, I want you to imagine, big people, receiving a letter in the mail from a friend promising to introduce you to a whole new way of seeing and understanding the world. How would you react if you got a letter telling you that there was a a new way to see, a new way to understand? You might be skeptical at first, right? You want to trust what your eyes can see. You want to trust what your senses are telling you. You want to trust what your life experiences up to this point have already confirmed But what if, what if it's true? What if this alternate reality is actually more real than what you've been taught or what you've observed your whole life? It would change everything, right? But you can't just base it off your friend's testimony, off of what he has to say. You have to know for yourself whether it is true or not. The question is, can you be certain That's pretty much what's going on here in this introduction to the gospel according to Luke. And though this might feel a long ways off for us historically and culturally, there is an uncanny nearness to the questions that we might wrestle with when it comes to whether or not the gospel is true. Whether Jesus is who he really says he is, something that we've looked at a lot over the last couple months as we explored the I Am statements in John, In that last series in John, it kind of felt like rapid fire. Like we were just going, hitting all those topics. But now we're going to slow down a little bit here as we work through Luke. Uh, There's no end date in sight uh, for this sermon series, and I'm not going to make any promises. Uh, We're going to see how far we get until until June, and then we'll probably take a break in the summer and and dive back into the Psalms. But then we're going to pick back up in the next fall in Luke and keep going until we finish it. So we'll see how long it takes, Uh, but this is a great gospel to kind of slow down, right? Kind of get into the details. So buckle your seatbelts, all right? Here we go. Let's jump right in. Andrew already read it for the kids, but we'll read it one more time. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to start off and look at some background information and kind of take a a 30,000 foot view, overview of Luke, and then we're going to unpack these first four verses. Just kind of, again, if you're taking notes, just some bullet point kind of things. This is, this is kind of the, the general stuff you would get uh, if you have like an ESV study Bible or just an introduction uh, to the Gospels. This is kind of the basic information you're going to get. We're just going to hit this stuff real quickly. The author, surprise, surprise, is Luke, okay? Um, you can read all the critical scholars who will have all their reasons why they don't think it's Luke, but... I believe Luke wrote it, so we're going with Luke, all right? Uh, Luke is Paul's traveling companion. He was most likely a Gentile. It means he was a non-Jew, and he had a deep understanding of the Old Testament. The date was probably in the late 50s or early 60s. It was written before Acts, and it's written as a companion volume to go along with Acts, which were both written by Luke. So we have this two-volume set. The audience is Theophilus or the whole church, uh, really really the whole world. Uh, Luke has more of a universal emphasis than any of the other Gospels do, uh, partly probably because he was a Gentile, so he's not just writing to the Jews, he's also writing to the Gentiles, and there's, there's really, we see this kind of breaking down of ethnic barriers, that's a, a big theme in Luke. The purpose of Luke was certainty about the person and work of Jesus, and we're going to see that, especially here in his introduction here in these first four verses. Some key themes throughout Luke's gospel is salvation, uh, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the servant, he's the prophet of the Lord who comes in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. There's a big emphasis on the kingdom of God, which is, is a very important theme throughout. There's an emphasis on God's plan of salvation and how Jesus is the fulfillment, as I already said, of those promises made throughout the Old Testament. We see that especially in chapters 1 and 2, which we're going to be spending a, a while on here as we lead up to, to Christmas time. Uh, we're going to be going real slowly through that and looking at all these people and, and, and situations that really point us to the Old Testament and how Jesus comes and fulfills those things. A uh, big emphasis on the poor and the outcast in Luke's gospel. Uh, kind of a, a key verse, if you will, for that is uh, 19.10, where he's uh, talking with Zacchaeus. And he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So there's this big emphasis on, on salvation, an emphasis on the lost, especially on the poor and outcast. Uh, Luke talks about the Holy Spirit probably more than any of the other gospel writers. A uh, big emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And then parables. Uh, There's parables in all the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke has 14 parables that are unique to Luke that aren't in any of the other Gospels. So the Good Samaritan, Prodigal Son, Rich Man and Lazarus, some of the more well-known parables. Those are parables that are only in Luke. So Luke has a unique perspective, a unique emphasis that he's trying to, uh, to focus on. As we go through, we'll kind of see a little bit about the structure and how the, how the book is divided up. Uh, there's really a, there's kind of a geographical progression. He, when Jesus kind of begins off, he's first in Galilee in his ministry. And then he's, this, the whole middle part of the book from like 
chapter 9 to 19, is this really long section where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And then he finally arrives in Jerusalem where he's going to die and rise again. And why this is important, we saw it in the first few verses here. Luke talks about writing an orderly account. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of like, more specific details of, of where Jesus is and what he's doing. Uh, Luke focuses on those things. The gospel is going to end with the ascension, where Jesus goes again into heaven. And then the book of Acts is going to pick up on that and start off. So there's kind of this like weaving together and overlapping of Luke and Acts. Which really is going to cover basically from the birth of Jesus through the birth of the church. Okay, Birth of Jesus, life and ministry, and then the book of Acts is going to be the birth of the church. So that's going to be this whole narrative that we see. <clears throat> Uh, one commentator, Daryl Bach, who's one of the, written one of the bigger commentaries on Luke, he says one of the main issues that the early church was wrestling with was what does it mean to respond to Jesus? And he says, um, okay, I don't have that with me. I'm missing one part of what I was going to share. Um, but he talks about the, this God calling these people together in a new community and what this looked like for the work that, that he was doing to gather these people together and to start this new thing, okay? That was responding to Jesus meant becoming a part of this new community. And then he goes on, which I have here in my notes, to talk about the blessings of the new community. He talks about things like forgiveness and life and peace and the promise of the Spirit. And then he says, these blessings and the way in which the promise is set forth show that Luke's agenda is not a political one. Nevertheless, the ethics of the community does have social implications. The transformation of people is to be exemplified in this new community, which stands alongside secular institutions. People of this new community who love God should manifest their love by caring for those in the community and those neighbors outside of the community. If social concern and compassion are visible anywhere, it is in the hope that the new community and its message of blessing and transformation offer to all, as well as in the concrete expression of such care in the generosity, love, and activity of the community. This is something I think that is very important in our day and age. We are in a time, we are in a, in a time and place where I think there is more division, uh, there's more, more polarization than, I, than I've experienced in my life. And you hear people searching for answers, right? You, peer, you hear people searching for things. And a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want God, I don't want religion. But everyone wants community, right? People are so lonely today. You hear, when you hear people talking about loneliness and how to overcome it, I was just watching some TED Talk about anxiety and depression and how, like, what are all, what are the secrets? And it's like, there's not this big secret. It's, it's being with other people, right? It's being in community. And he's talking about these, like, African villages where, like, they don't have all this technology, medical technology, all this. And, like, they do it the old school way, which is, like, surrounding yourself with people, right? Like, isolation is a huge issue in our day. And people struggle with that, but nobody wants to be isolated. And, but we, we're trying to, like, figure out all these ways that we can fix these problems and it comes down to, it has to start with community, right? It has to start with being around other people. Now, obviously, for us as Christians, that looks differently. We're not here to just, like, meet certain emotional needs and whatnot. We're here because God calls us 
to come together, to be together with one another. But then what, what Bach is talking about here, the blessings that flow out from that to the community around us are tremendous. This isn't, we're not just some social club that gets together and like does our thing and then we, we scatter and we don't have anything to do with each other the rest of the week or anything to do with our community. The church and what God has called us to do is that unique community. It is that new community that is to be a blessing to the world. And we do that as we're in the world and not of the world. And I think that's, that's the tension, right? That's the balance that we, we try to walk with and try to find. So, so this informs how we live in the present. But as Christians, we're always living with a view to the future, right? It's not just enough to say, okay, we want to, like, have a good life here and, and figure out how to be happy and how to have, you know, the things we need. We're always living with a view to the future, Another commentator, Joel Green, says, The third gospel gives expression to an eschatological, means end times, eschatological, eschatological, say that three times fast, vision currently manifesting itself in the world wherein God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. That's a quote from Mary's song, which we're going to see in a few weeks. So God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Indeed, it is not too much to say that the Lucan narrative is an invitation to embrace an alternative worldview and to live as if the reign of God had already revolutionized this age. Because it has, right? Now, we might not see it fully manifested, but the kingdom has come and God has invaded this world and this world is changed, right? It's different than it was before Jesus came and died and rose again. The world is transformed. And this is, for us, immensely practical in our day. He says it's an invitation to embrace an alternative worldview and to live as if the reign of God has already revolutionized this age. Okay, one more kind of overview thing from a, a, from a commentary that is helpful uh, in the Baker Commentary, Baker New Testament Commentary, uh, William Hendrickson, he asks, how does the gospel according to Luke shed light on today's problems? Okay, there's four things. I'm going to read them through first, um, just the, the simple statement, and then I'm going to add a little something to it. So how does the gospel of Luke shed light on today's problems? Four things. It's a book of doctrine showing us what to believe. It's a book of ethics Telling us how to live. Again, kind of going back to our, question, our catechism question, right? What we believe and how we, how we live. It's a book of comfort, teaching us why to rejoice. And it's a book of prophecy, informing us what to expect. Now, in two of those, he adds the phrase, in a world where, fill in the blank, and I added it for the two that he didn't have that exact language for. So I'm going to say those again with the, in a world where, so Luke's gospel, how does it shed, again, how does it shed light on today's problems? Getting super practical for us. How does this matter? Why does this matter in our lives? It is a book of doctrine showing us what to believe in a world filled with confusion about who God is and an evangelical culture that doesn't take doctrine seriously. A book of doctrine showing us what to believe in a world filled with confusion about who God is and an evangelical culture that doesn't take doctrine seriously. I would say, for the most part. Not always. Second, a book of ethics telling us how to live in a f world filled with moral confusion. 
you name the issue right now, and there's confusion. Confusions about life. Confusions about identity. Confusions about sexuality. These are all moral issues where there is tremendous confusion. And the gospel, according to Luke, is a book of ethics telling us how to live in this world. How to live out the Christian faith. Third, it is a book of comfort teaching us why to rejoice in a world filled with despair. Okay, we already talked about that a little bit. Talked about, you know, the despair, things that people are going through, right? Community is a huge one. But coming together and worshiping and rejoicing and praising God in the midst of the despair around us. Even in the midst of the despair that we might be experiencing in our own lives. Lastly, a book of prophecy informing us what to expect in a world filled with confusion about the future, okay? Just go read, you know, any, like, popular news stuff about the future and what people are talking about. I mean, there's there's confusion everywhere. The world, the secular world, does not have a vision for the future. There's no hope, right? I mean, everything you read is like, the world's coming to an end because of all these different things, right? This is a book that will inform us about what to expect in that world that is filled with confusion. Okay. So how does it shed light on today's problems, those things? Ultimately, it sheds light on these problems because it is God's holy word. It is his word, his final word, his final authority to us. So it has the final say on these things. And that's the point of Luke's introduction here to Theophilus. In these four short verses, which in the Greek is just one long sentence... Uh, Luke here gives his purpose for writing, and I think this, these statements here are a microcosm of what we ought to believe and how we should approach all of Scripture. Okay? He's writing here specifically just about his letter, his gospel account, but I think this is helpful things for us as we think about approaching all of Scripture. Now, obviously, we don't read a gospel in the same way that we read the Psalms, which is poetry, or Isaiah and Jeremiah, Old Testament prophecy, or the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. We don't read those all in the same way. But again, what Luke lays out for us here, this is the attitude that we should have regarding the reliability and the trustworthiness of all of Scripture. So let's dig into this introduction here, verses 1 through 4, and let's see uh, how Luke handles that. I have a little uh, a bit of alliteration going on here with an A and a C. So if you're taking notes, uh, the first thing is assurance and certainty. This is the first thing that uh, Luke is going to address. I know, sorry, A and C are not alliterative, right? I have four different points and they're all A and C. So if you're like, this guy doesn't know what alliteration is, yes. Assurance and certainty. I just want to be clear about that. So we're going to have three more A and C. Okay. So Luke starts off here by referencing in verse 1, others who have undertaken to compile a narrative or to organize an account of the things that happened. Now we might read this and be like, oh yeah, Luke must have just been like reading these other guys' accounts and being like, they don't know what they're talking about, so I'm going to write my own account. Well, this is actually, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is a criticism of the other accounts. And I think we know that because of verse 3, he says, it seemed good also to me. Uh, there's, there's other accounts out there, these are good, but it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. It says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Um, we don't know necessarily who he's referring to, who these others are. Uh, many 
doesn't necessarily mean a lot in numbers. It uh, doesn't mean, you know, it's like 500 other people. Uh, many just means that, that there are others. Uh, it could refer to Mark or Matthew in their gospel accounts. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be written accounts either. It could be oral accounts that have been passed down, the oral tradition. But the simple answer is we don't know exactly uh, who they were. But the point is that Luke is actually setting out to do something that they didn't do. Uh, he compiled Luke and Acts, which we already talked about. It's kind of that story from the, from the birth of Christ all the way through the birth and the, and the mission and the establishment of the early church. So there's no other companion volume to any of the other Gospels. So Luke is, is setting out to give this orderly account from, from the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry all the way through, through the, the birth of the early church. Next, then he speaks of the things that have been accomplished among us. And the word that's used here for accomplished, it actually has two different senses. And you, you'll see this translated if you read the King James Version. It, it has this sense of uh, being fully convinced of something. So this, this word can talk about a fulfillment, which is what this word accomplished is, is emphasizing on. Something that's been fulfilled. And it can also, so that's like something that happened. But it also can like talk about us as the as the people that are a part of this, we become fully convinced of what we have heard. Um, and I think, I think this, both of these senses make sense here, right? Um, this idea of that God's, the fulfillment of God's plan, what has been accomplished among us, should lead us to being convinced. It should lead us to having certainty. So those things, are, they're not like two separate ideas. God has accomplished our salvation through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension. And Luke is seeking to give an accurate account of all of those things. And then in our, when we finish up in our fourth point, we'll come back again to this idea of assurance or certainty. Okay, second thing. Authority and credibility. So we have assurance, certainty, authority, credibility. So in verse 2, Luke points to the authority or the credibility of what he is writing. And again, he's pointing us to an argument for the authority of all of Scripture. He says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. These are not just some stories that Luke heard after playing some ancient version of the telephone game, right? You know, you'd like... You line up, and you got 10 people in a line, and you, like, tell the story, and the farther down the line it goes and gets passed down, like, by the time you get to the end, you're like, it has nothing to do with what the original story was, right? That's not what's going on here when Luke is talking about him receiving this information. He mentions those who, from the beginning, of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, were eyewitnesses. And Luke would have probably had opportunities to speak with these people. Again, we don't know exactly who he's, he's referencing here, who these eyewitnesses are. It's possible that it could have been the, some of the disciples. It could have been Mary, Jesus' mother. It could have been others who were around when these events were taking place. And then when he says ministers of the word here, this word ministers is often also translated servants. That's probably referring to the apostles, those who, who delivered or handed down the teachings of Jesus. And and Paul uses this word delivered uh, twice in 1 Corinthians, and I think it's really kind of helpful and, and instructive for us here. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, 
and he that's at the at the establishment of the Lord or the when they're he's talking about the Lord's Supper there in in First Corinthians eleven. So I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Then in First Corinthians fifteen verse three, he says, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So does Paul here say that he's delivering some rumor that he heard from a friend of a friend of a friend? No, he says, I received from the Lord. This is not Paul getting something from his own imagination. He received from the Lord what he delivered to us. And we need to remember that truth here. We need to remember what Luke is receiving is ultimately from the Lord. Even though he hears it from other eyewitnesses, he receives from the the Lord what he's delivering here to Theophilus and to us. We need to remember that the Bible is a divine book and it is a human book. What do I mean by that? God is ultimately the author of Scripture, but he works through people. He works through people like Luke doing their research, getting their information, and writing that down. It doesn't make it any less Scripture because Luke had to get these details and find out this information from other people and write this orderly account. God uses his human agents. Now, it would be very convenient to say that God just appeared and drops some golden tablets down and, right, you copy it down and, oh, all of a sudden, well, now they're missing, right? That's not how it works, right? God works through the human agents. He works through them writing themselves and and passing those copies on and so that we can know that it is trustworthy and reliable. God chooses to communicate the scriptures. He has chosen to communicate the scriptures to many types of people throughout many different time periods in history, so that we are able to sit here today. We are able to to take our Bibles in our hands and read them and read about his wonderful plan of salvation because of what he has done in giving us the scriptures. And we're even told in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, we're told how God has done this. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's talking there about the transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word made, prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have this promise here that Everything that we have in Scripture is not just man's own doing. It's not even Luke, again, doing his research and writing these things down. It was not just him deciding what to do. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote these things. 
So the authority and the credibility of the scriptures cannot rest on hoping that, again, Luke or Paul or Peter, that they got all their facts straight and that they dotted all their iotas and crossed, crossed all their taus. That was a, a bad Greek joke for James. I don't even know if he was listening, but that's okay. He's trying to, he's trying to ignore me. But we talked about this a couple weeks ago on Reformation Sunday. The battle cry of the Reformation was ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the scriptures, sola scriptura, scripture alone, which is our final authority for faith and practice. It's the only rule that we have for faith and practice. And this idea of authority is an interesting one. I'm sure in every, in every generation that has ever lived for different reasons, there has been a mistrust of authority. Whether it's been an abuse of power or a lack of exercising authority in a way that promotes justice and righteousness. But I don't think our generation is inherently more suspicious of authority. But we do have something with our, the 24-hour news cycle, the example of the examples of abuses that are always before us, sometimes graphically right before our eyes in videos. I think we have grown in a unique way in our, our day and age because of these things to, to really deeply mistrust authority. So what should our right response be as Christians in a world where there's a deep tr- mistrust for authority? We might even feel that ourselves in some ways. How should we respond. I think firstly, whether it's again ourselves or, or someone else, especially if it's someone else, I think there should, be, there should be a deep empathy and a common ground with those who are experiencing those frustrations. When people are going through trials and struggles in their life that are a result of, of an abuse of power or an abuse of authority, we shouldn't just pass those things off and say, well, it happens, right? It's been happening for all of human history. Just deal with it. But next, and most importantly, we need to speak about the authority and the reliability of the testimony of Scripture. It's easy to get derailed into theological discussions about things that, even while they're important, cannot be clarified or supported without an appeal to the Scriptures. It's easy to just get caught up in in conversations that really, at the end of the day, maybe don't really matter. Because we're not helping people to see where these things are grounded. We're not pointing them back to the scriptures. I had a very interesting conversation this week that kind of, I ended up going down that rabbit trail and just afterwards I left and was like, I didn't like, like I didn't go back to scripture. Like I was talking about all these theological things, but really the authority of scripture was like the key thing in this discussion I was having. And I was like, ah, so great reminder that we need to help people see that, that they can trust God, that they can trust his word when they're in these situations. So, again, how does this apply to us? If you're a Christian, study your Bible. Seek to know and to love the God who reveals himself to you in its pages. If your only exposure to the word of God is here on Sunday mornings, when we read it and sing it and pray it and preach it, as important as that is, If that's all you're getting, if you're not reading it for yourselves, then your own spiritual nourishment is being impacted. You're not abiding in the vine and growing in the way that Jesus calls us to. 
And if you're struggling with that, if you need help get, just getting started, come and talk to me or talk to James or talk to someone else who's here who can help you with that. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, read the Bible. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change the fact that it's God's word and that it has authority over your life. I believe that he will reveal himself to you if you read it and you study it and you seek to know him and you seek the truth that is found in its pages. But don't just go to the Bible to find information. Don't just go to like, oh, hey, Luke wrote this interesting story and I'm going to like follow his timeline and like put it up on my wall and say, that's a really cool story. No. Go expecting to have your whole world flipped upside down by the God who put that information on the pages. Expect to come away no longer worshiping the empty things of this world, but the God who created the world. The God who created you and who tells you that you owe him your life. I don't know if you've ever heard those testimonies of people who have went to the scriptures and, and tried to study the scriptures and read and study in an attempt to debunk them, right? Maybe to like write some some paper or, or do some, some project. And then they, they go to the scriptures and they get saved and they come away like, oh my gosh, it's true, right? Those are always my favorite testimonies to read because these people go in with sometimes very evil intentions. Sometimes it's not totally evil, but even just like, oh, I don't believe this. I'm gonna. And then they're confronted with who Jesus is and they just can't run away from it, right? I was actually, there was actually just a story in, in one of the commentaries I was reading this week about a guy who had an experience like that, and it was something I hadn't heard before, and just, he was older and uh, had been around, a, a, like, an academic guy, and was just, like, going to write this paper, and starts reading the Bible, and, and God flips his world upside down. So God can use even that, he can even use those broken, sinful motives, right, to draw you to himself. Third thing is, the accuracy and the care. Third thing we see here in Luke's introduction is the accuracy and the care with which he has taken on this task. He has followed these things closely and he is writing an orderly account. Luke's attention to detail throughout this gospel is exquisite because the details matter and the truth matters. And we see that Luke is very, very careful. Again, talk about being dismissive of authority. I think we can tend to be dismissive of details or accuracy until it really matters. Imagine yourself having a crime committed against you or having a crime committed against someone that you love. Do you want attention to detail and accuracy in the courtroom? You better believe it. Or going back to our last point, do you want eyewitness testimony that is reliable? Do you want people there who really saw what happened and who are going to tell the truth about what happened? You absolutely do. Why would the God of the universe who has chosen to reveal himself to us through the scriptures not choose to do so in a way that carefully and accurately tells us about who he is and what he has done for us to save us from sin and death and hell? This is an accurate and reliable and trustworthy testimony. 
Now we're introduced to most excellent Theophilus, and there are pages upon pages upon pages of debate about the identity of Theophilus, and I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But Luke addresses Theophilus here. He also addresses him in the beginning of Acts. Uh, again, a lot of theories out there. The simple answer, we don't know who he is for sure. Uh, it's likely that he was a Gentile of significant social standing. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. Uh, he may have been the one who was funding Luke's writing project. But he's probably, a, he's probably a believer, probably a young believer who is in some situation where he is struggling with some of these questions. Are these accounts of Jesus' life and, and ministry credible? Are they accurate? Can I know for sure that these things that, that I've claimed to believe, can I know that they are true? And that's what Luke addresses in verse 4. The final one is the same as the first one, assurance and certainty again. So we come now to Luke's purpose for writing. And we know we have some purpose statements in the New Testament for writing. John wrote his purpose statement at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wraps it all up by saying, this is why I wrote to you. Luke starts saying, this is why I'm writing to you. That Theophilus would know or recognize or understand the things that he has been taught. Okay, This word here for taught is the Greek word katekeo. Catechize. Okay, It's where we get the word catechism from. Katekeo. It means to be taught, to be instructed in a systematic, detailed way. So if we think about this whole journey that we're going to go on here with Theophilus, Luke is the catechizer, and Theophilus is the one being catechized by what Luke is writing. In our Reformed traditions, we have a strong emphasis on our catechisms and on our confessions. We catechize ourselves, and we catechize our children, not so that we can show off our badges and how awesome we are and how we did all of our memory work but so that we can have the truth of God written on our hearts. In the early church, new converts were called catechumens, and they would go through an entire year of instruction. They would go through this detailed process where they would be instructed in the ways of the faith as they prepared to be baptized on Easter morning. So Theophilus here, he is the catechumen. He is the one who is studying, who is being taught, and who needs to continue to learn and to study, just like us. Believe me, as I, as I dig into these things, and as I wrestle with the scriptures, as I prepare to deliver them to you, I'm overwhelmed by the weight of the responsibility and the weight of how much there still is to learn. The first four verses here in Luke are, like, super hard in the Greek. It's like, like Luke is writing in a very, like, very stylized, very like lofty way. Like this is this is like really hard studying, and there's and it's not like we can't understand it, but it takes work, right? It takes work to dig into the scriptures. It takes takes work. It takes work just to read them consistently, right? So I want to encourage you in that as we're digging in here, read and dig in and and eat it up. It's that important. 
And as, as hard and as overwhelming as it might feel, we're not left to be overwhelmed. This long sentence here ends with a very important word, and we don't see it in, our, in the word order of our English translations. But the final word in this long Greek sentence is certainty. Okay? Now, in Greek, when a word is at the beginning of a sentence, like grammatic, it seems grammatically weird at the beginning of a sentence, or it seems grammatically weird at the end of a sentence, it's put there for emphasis. This whole, these whole four verses, Luke like drops the hammer at the end to emphasize certainty. I'm writing for your certainty. I'm writing that you would know that these things are true. And by the grace of God, Luke is after Theophilus' certainty. And he's after our certainty as well. That we would know, that we would have certainty that these things are true. So we are setting off here. We, um, we're embarking on a long journey alongside Theophilus, our fellow student, alongside Luke and the Holy Spirit as our teacher. And let us be, brothers and sisters, as we claim to be, let us be a people of the book, those who trust and receive and submit to the authority of God and his word rather than the traditions of men. Let us treasure and delight in God for how personally he deals with each one of us. And let us rejoice that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this brief introduction to this long book that we are going to be digging into. We thank you for the reminder that we can have certainty, we can have surety, we can have assurance, because this is not just the words of men, this is not just Luke's hard work, this is the message of the gospel, the reliable truth that you, by your spirit, allowed Luke to write, and we can sit here today and read these words. God, I pray that you would give us a deeper love, a deeper conviction, a deeper passion for you and your word, for digging in so that we might know you and that we might grow in our faith and our, in our walks with you, that we might be changed, that we might go out into the world as that new community and share with others the hope that we have in Christ, that we might share from the scriptures what is true about who we are because of who you are. God, thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to write it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our...